You're listening to Points in Between. This is episode seven, Me in English. Here's a simple question. What is the most widely spoken language in the world? Before you answer, let me play you something. Remember Tobias, who grew up between Germany, the U.S., and Belgium? This first part here is about his life before kindergarten, first in Germany, then briefly in the U.S. At home, my parents were speaking German and English with us because they wanted us to start speaking English with more ease when we were at school. So even though I'd grown up just speaking German, I started speaking English for the first time. His family returned to Germany, then moved to Belgium, where he attended an international school. I spoke English every day in school. All my classes were in English except my language classes, because I took French class and German class. All I spoke at home was English, just because my dad was speaking English at work, my mom was speaking English all the time, my siblings were obviously as well. We only spoke German when we would visit my German grandparents in Germany. French we learned because, you know, when you go out to buy groceries, you have to be able to speak the language that is around you. Or how about this one? Linger was born in the U.S. to Gambian parents. They returned to the Gambia when Linger was five, and she attended elementary and middle school there. We spoke English. My parents spoke to me in both Aku and Wolof, which are both languages in the Gambia and in other West African countries as well. So though I fluently understand Aku and I almost fluently understand Wolof, we almost always spoke English to each other. And do a lot of people in the Gambia speak uh, English? Yes, yeah, so the Gambia was colonized by the British, like a lot of countries, unfortunately, on the continent of Africa. So English is the national language. I would say that everyone speaks some English, but the most spoken languages are probably Mandinka and Wolof. When I was younger in the Gambia, I tried to speak Wolof a few times and people laughed at me and made fun of me. So I basically never spoke it, even though I always understood it, which has led me to fascinating situations in the Gambia where people will talk trash about me in front of my face in Wolof thinking I don't understand, but I really do. The language of instruction in Lingair school was English, but the languages for social interaction among the students were more varied. Some people would speak English during lunch a little bit. I, I think with some of the Gambian languages, people go back and forth between saying stuff in Wolof and saying it in English all the time. But I also, I mean, was with this group of friends and none of us spoke any of the other languages. So we were basically just always together. And we'd sometimes, as we got older, we started to actually hang out with other people more. But for maybe at least five or six years in like middle and early high school, we basically only hung out with each other. So let me pose that question again. What is the most widely spoken language in the world? To answer it, you've got to make a decision. Does Tobias count toward the number of English speakers because that's what he speaks most frequently? Does he count as a German speaker because that was his first language? Or a French speaker because that's the language of the country where he lived and he speaks it in public? Does he count for all three? And what about Linguer? If her parents or classmates speak to her in Aku or Wolof, she understands them, but she responds in English. So, is she only an English speaker? This episode of Points in Between explores language. Language as a feature of identity, as an obstacle to be overcome by students, and as an entree into many parts of society. Language is complicated. Speaking a language is both a thing you do 
and at the same time, a marker of who you are in relation to a community. At home, Lingare and her parents formed a single small community, despite sometimes using two languages in even the same conversation. At school, though, her social circle was defined by the language she felt comfortable speaking, not just by the one she understood. For students in school, often the most emotionally important element of language is how it can isolate them from the rest of their school community. And of course, as you heard in Lingare's account, this is not unique to America. Ruth, who moved from Ohio to Mexico as a young child, had a vivid experience of isolation there before she learned to speak Spanish. One of the first memories that I have is being on the school bus. It was kind of a small school bus for a private school in the southern part of Mexico City, in the Pedregal. And the Pedregal is on volcanic rock. So the shock from the earthquake wasn't felt as strongly, but the earthquake was in the morning, um, and the 1985 earthquake of Mexico City, and I didn't feel it. I do remember that we stopped the bus and everybody got out and I didn't know what they were saying. And so I just stayed on the bus and we went through the whole school day. And when we were coming home on the bus, somebody, this guy, Oscar, said something about earthquake in English. And I was like, what? Earthquake? And then, of course, he was like, oh, my God, you hadn't found out what's wrong with you. Like, and it was because I hadn't understood. And so then I got home that night and my parents told me, that there'd been a really huge earthquake in the city. Everybody had f- had figured something out together, and I had no clue. And I was just kind of like keeping my head down, feeling, you know, like, yes, unaware of my surroundings, but also because I didn't understand anything, not trying to let on. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was evident later that I had no clue what was happening. Ruth's story reveals confusion, feelings of isolation, and embarrassment, all common components of this process. When Ruth returned to the U.S. at 16, she certainly felt some cultural dislocation, but she wasn't isolated by language. She already spoke English. Roya's family fled Afghanistan for India when she was 11, and she moved to the U.S. when she was 14. When she left Afghanistan, she spoke Farsi and some Russian because it was required in school. They moved from Afghanistan first to India, where she learned Hindi. So English was her fourth language. It was so difficult to walk in the class and everybody speaking English, and you're just sitting there like deaf, like you don't know what they're saying. And you're like, oh my God. And you had already done that once with Hindi. The Hindi, because it was a, a year break, so I was home learning you know, it wasn't that getting in the classroom right away. So I had to get adjusted to learn a little bit, picking up the language on my own ways to go class. But this one was like, from Hindi coming here and then all English, it was like, it was really hard because I felt like I am coming um, in a place that I just don't know the language, I can't communicate, I don't have any friends, nobody talks to me, I'm like I'm invisible, like someone like sitting there and kind of like, what's going on here? Do you remember any teachers reaching out to you then? I had uh, two, Miss Grady, I never forget her, she was amazing, she was English second language, she was one of the best teacher I ever had, I, I still remember her. Um, 
she was the one who really helped us uh, at the group of English second language classes. She took us to our home. She kind of exposed us to American culture, took us to restaurants, really becoming like our friend, like hanging out with us and teaching us. She was incredible. I never forget her. I think she was just trying to reach us to us and make us feel comfortable and make us to uh, connect with her and not feeling lonely, not feeling being, we're not, uh, you're not part of that, that's cool. It's like she would be coming our, our like way off to go have our lunch, go stay in her classroom and just to chat with her and talk to her. How long did it take you to get comfortable with the language? Oh my God, uh, I would say uh, college. First two years was hard, it was really, really difficult. But I would say college was easier. I didn't really care about my accent because I was so cautious about my accent. Like Ruth, Roya felt socially isolated and embarrassed by her inability to communicate. Concern over her accent made it even harder to practice and learn the language. Her ESL teacher formed a crucial bridge to her new community. And you can hear in Roya's voice that her teacher's kindness and the emotional connection she offered was at least as important as the language instruction. Education programs for non-English speakers have a complicated history in American schools. We've had them here in the U.S. in different forms since long before the widespread establishment of public schools. Actually, even since before the establishment of the U.S. Programs have ranged from true bilingual education, that is, education that preserves students' original language, teaching new content in their original language while they acquire English, to classes simply to teach English. And for most of U.S. history, they tended to be local initiatives created to serve the needs of particular communities. But schools are powerful vectors to teach or reinforce broader cultural ideas. In the 1870s, the federal government began supporting a system of Indian residential schools. Native American parents were frequently coerced into sending their children to these schools, often far from home. The students were required to learn and communicate in English as part of a larger program of disrupting and really eradicating Native American cultures. Of course, these schools happened in the context of conquest, not immigration. The first quarter of the 20th century saw a massive influx of newcomers to the U.S. Like the then-still-suspect Irish population, many of them were Catholic. And, unlike earlier waves of immigrants from Europe, the majority came from Southern and Eastern Europe. At the same time, the Mexican Revolution caused an increase in immigration from Mexico to the southwestern states. This is the period, right after World War I, when language instruction and English as the language of instruction began to take on its modern, now explosive political character. At the heart of the conflict are two connected ideas about schools. The first is schools as pathways to economic opportunity. And the second is schools as forces to spread and reinforce American cultural norms. How do students who can't speak English access school as opportunity? Are they on their own? Or do schools provide instruction in English? And is that bilingual education? Or do students have to master English before they can access the school's math and science and history instruction? In other words, how much of your first culture and language do you have to give up in order to access the American dream? 
1967 Federal Bilingual Education Act and the 1974 Lau v. Nichols court case affirmed that schools had a responsibility to make education accessible to students who couldn't speak English. But policies governing the exact nature of that instruction are still in flux. There's the big picture, and then there's how it feels to be in it. Jessica came from Mexico in sixth grade. She and her family moved to a Chicago neighborhood that was home to both new immigrants and Mexican-American families. So there's, that's the thing, like, a lot of people that speak English and people, newcomers, they don't really get along. Now, you think that they will get along just because you're the same ethnicity, like, you're both, you're both are Mexican, but that's not really the case. And I was actually bullied a lot throughout school just because not knowing English, and then, and it's like, I didn't want to be stuck that way. Like, I want to know what they're saying back to me. So then, actually, that really pushed me to learn the language because I just felt like I was being isolated, and I had no idea what they were, like, if they were talking bad about me or, you know, I guess you're always just get paranoid. So they put me in a bilingual class, and my teacher did speak Spanish, but she would just run her class all in English most of the time. There would only be sections that she would like speak Spanish, or if you actually had a question, she would speak to you in Spanish. But other than that, she would always speak English in class. And a little bit, like, that was a little hard to keep up at first, especially because, I mean, it's just like, you know, like foreign words, and you're like, you don't even know what she's saying. Unless when she will write on the board, then I would get it, because, I mean, you can see it. Um, but yeah, no, most of the time I would just have a dictionary on my desk and then whenever I didn't understand something she would say, I would just look it up because I, I can't be raising my hand all the time to ask her like, what did you say? What did you say? Yeah. And actually that was like really tough. My grades like weren't that good at the beginning. I think I mostly had like C's. So going from an A student to a C, that was kind of like, that was kind of like a blow to my ego, you know? I was just like, I can't believe I'm not good, doing good anymore. How did that change you when you couldn't speak the language and you weren't still a good student? That changed me a lot, actually. I feel like I actually became more of a quiet person and like a more observant because, I mean, if you're not able to talk to anyone, then you're just watching what everything else going on around you. So, yeah, I mean, it's better, like I would only talk to kids that I would like hear that they spoke Spanish before because like most of the kids like like I would like want to start a conversation with someone I didn't know and like I can only speak Spanish and like. I know you can speak Spanish, so I would talk to them in Spanish, but then they would reply to me in English, and I'm just like, I'm trying to talk to you, and you're replying to me in that way that I can't even understand. So, yeah, so that didn't go well. So, yeah, so I ended up only making friends with the, with the other kids that were also newcomers, not the kids that were already here, but, like, people that were also immigrating. Did it, do you think that made you want to hold on to Spanish more, or do you think it made you, like, how did that make you feel about your own language? So that actually made me feel kind of ashamed because, like, I feel like when, even when I started speaking English, like, if you spoke with an accent, like a really heavy accent, then you're being laughed at by everybody else, by all the other kids. And even adults will be like, I don't understand you, you know? And that kind of makes you, puts you in an embarrassing spot. Like, you're trying to communicate. And if the person doesn't understand you, like, that just makes you more afraid to even want to speak more. Jessica described the same sense of isolation and embarrassment as Roya, but her English learning experience was very different. Roya's teacher couldn't speak Farsi, but her actions made her feel welcomed in a way that the rest of her school experience did not. Conversely, Jessica's sense of isolation and embarrassment was increased by the fact that her teacher and classmates could speak Spanish, but just wouldn't. Another complicating element of this process is the distance between the kid experience and the adult parent experience. I asked Jessica if she spoke with her parents about her challenges at school. It was just, I mostly just kept it to myself, really. 
and just I would talk about it with my sister because I know she will go through the same through the same hardships as I did and I'd be like I had to like tell her like you know it's gonna be okay because nobody else will tell her that and I also like the reason why I wanted to learn English quickly just because to help her with her homework as well because I mean there was nobody else that would help you and they were always sent, used to send us upstairs with my cousin I mean he was going in, he was in eighth grade and then I oh, will go help uh, ask him for help to do you know with your homework in English and I'm like but he would always just be pissed off and he's like why do I have to deal with this? Why do I have to do somebody else's homework? Kids whose parents are struggling to make ends meet, whose parents don't understand American schools, have to look elsewhere, or to each other, for help. So far as he remembers, Raouf was the only Arabic speaker in his school. But someone there thought to reach out to a community organization for help. But after a while, I think three months, I found out about it in Arabic, the Arabic Community Cultural Center in my neighborhood, the Tenderloin. Did they help you learn English there? Yeah. They really break that barrier. I was referred to it, and that's where I found my real mentor. The first time I went up to him, you know, he gave me a math problem, and I solved it. And he says, good sign. Give me the second one. I solved it. He gave me the third one. And I struggled, but he was able to sort of like show me the mistake and then went back and corrected, you know. And he told me, don't go nowhere. And I told him, what do you mean? He said, stay with me. I want to help you out. Raouf began going to the cultural center regularly, heading straight there after school got out. And we sometimes used to stay until like nine o'clock. And my family just worried, you know, I didn't even have a phone, a cell phone, so that they can call me. And they told me, why you're staying up that late? We're just worried about you. And you can't stay that long. But they told them, don't worry, I'm just with Ibrahim. Raouf's relationship with Ibrahim deepened into something far beyond tutor and student. Holistically, from if, if, I, if I go back and look at the whole picture, he was just a mentor. He was someone that was always for me. And in fact, when I was in my last senior, I was the big trump, you know, when he decided to push me hard enough to say that I need to go to UC Berkeley. Raouf recently graduated from UC Berkeley and... He volunteers at the Cultural Center. If you've ever tried to master a new language, you know it is a significant task that extends far beyond the classroom. Caroline came from Czech Republic when she was 14. For several months, she lived with a Czech-American girl who became her friend and introduced her to a social circle. Uh, it was very, like, boys-focused. <laughs> I would be texting with boys and they're trying to be cute and trying to learn just how to be conversational. And I got this, um, like one of those like pop-out phones when you have the keyboard underneath the text that I realized that texting was like the essence of people's lives. So you would, you would go home after school and all you would do is just have these long conversation or text messages. So that's when it really all kicked in in terms of language. And then of course there's TV. At that time, um, uh, because of that girl I lived with, you know, she would put on Spongebob or she would put on any of these shows. And I started realizing, like, oh, this could be really good. So I got into Hannah Montana. 
and I would watch that with subtitles on, and I've heard a couple people say this already, um, like, you know, people that come here, they're immigrants, they're trying to learn language, it's always the shows, it's always things, like, easy things, like, especially older shows like Friends and all that stuff, when they, when they speak, uh, most of the time properly, I would say, but they still speak in that, like, social, I don't know, just, you know, things that you would say every day, on an everyday basis, stuff like that, so when you put on the subtitles, you start to read, and you start to understand what's what's being said and you start to adopt that vocabulary that speaking vocabulary and that is that is how i like learned english it's hannah montana the things these speakers describe from tutoring to watching hannah montana all take time but their efforts may not be visible to their teachers angel is an exchange student at uc berkeley and when she came she knew that class participation was important for her grade but it posed a challenge Sometimes I feel difficulties because the um, the lecturer will ask a question and I know the answer, but I have to translate to English first, then I can speak. But the American student can speak out immediately. So and then I lose the chance to speak. So I have to, I have to prepare first. In the beginning of the semester, before the like seminar class, I would, I would think of what kind of a question the lecturer will ask, and I prepare for my. I write out even write out my answer first, and to like imitate the class scene, so that when they have when the question pop out in the class, I would just try to answer that question I prepared before. Yeah, but with the time passing, I find out it's like, it getting um, easier. Do you think your professors know that you're preparing ahead of time? I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think he noticed that I had to prepare more. I asked Juliana, an exchange student from Brazil, if she thought the experience of being in English-speaking classrooms had changed her in any way. I do think I'm completely different, actually. In Brazil, is to be very shy. I wouldn't talk. I would still talk with my professors in private, but um, not during class discussions or anything like that. Here, no, I, I tend to speak more, to talk about my opinions, my point of view, my cultural background. And um, not only that, but I think the fact that I had to study English to understand what others were saying, it kind of gave me like the courage to talk more in class, even when language it was, even when the language was complicated and I couldn't understand it. But it kind of gave me like this courage, this push to talk more. It, it doesn't truly matter your grammar mistakes. You just need to be able to communicate what you want, the idea that you want. I started to think just about this oh it doesn't matter if I'm like if this uh, pronoun is wrong or if this um, preposition is wrong the only thing that I, I want to do is communicate my idea and then I started to think about that and even in like back in Brazil now I, I just think about that I just want to communicate my idea. Juliana said the process of doing all of her studies in another language changed her personality but Omar originally from Syria and now studying in Vermont went deeper into the connection between language and identity itself. And just to note before you listen, to avoid any confusion, 
He uses the word co-years to refer to his classmates. Even me in Arabic is, I think, very different from me in English. Like, that's what at least I can hear from my co-years that speak Arabic. I, I can sense the difference between me speaking in English with them or anyone else and me speaking in Arabic. Like, I think, or at least I use, I, I, I believe that I am funnier in Arabic, that I am um, more... I don't know, there, there are definitely changes even within the personality itself and with the, with the things that you would be talking about, with the way you would be talking about certain stuff. When I start speaking Arabic, I already assume that I'm back on my, like the Arabic part of my culture and you start making those jokes that would make sense only for someone who lived in the Arab world who are, or who understands the culture at least. And there are always those parts that you can never not translate, but you can never transcend, like make them be transcended from one language to the other. They just stay within that, like, within that language and you can never show them or use them except using that language. I think it's really interesting to talk with someone in a language for a while and then change the language if you both speak the same and just see how different they can be and how, how like they would make a whole new first impression, I think, with a new language because they can like, be two different things. Omar's comments get at the universe of beliefs and values and associations that are wrapped up in a language. Internally, he is two connected but different Omars, Omar in Arabic and Omar in English. This helps explain the intensity of the rejection Jessica felt when her classmates and teacher refused to speak Spanish with her. They weren't just rejecting a certain set of words. And it gives insight into arguments that schools should help students retain their first languages while learning English. When newcomers arrive in U.S. schools, they find this set of linguistic identities overlaid on top of other peculiarly American categories of identity. We're going to end the episode with Kat's story. When she moved from Spain to Plano, Texas at age nine, she spoke only Spanish. Uh, So my stepdad took me to the office and introduced me to the person working at the main desk and told them that my name was Kathy, which is funny now because I had never really heard that name before because in Spanish, my, my friends would call me Kathy. Um, and so I, um, right away, everyone was calling me Kathy and it seemed kind of funny to me and like it wasn't really me, it was sort of like a disguise name. <laughs> And um, and then I also remember having this thought that if I had that name, people would assume that I would be able to speak English, but that uh, that could be that could become a problem. And then I remember going into the classroom and being introduced to the teacher and given a desk. And I remember the teacher was very nice and very well-meaning, uh, but the look on her face was sort of one of. Um, you know, like she just, she was a little overwhelmed by the concept of having to take me into the, the classroom. And I remember her talking to me and I sort of, you know, looked down at the ground or, or made some facial expression that made her realize that I didn't understand what she was saying. She, I think she was really worried at first <laughs> about how this was all going to work out. At first, as you heard in other accounts, social interactions were difficult. And I could definitely tell when the kids were talking to me in a teasing way from the tone. And I remember that being really 
like difficult to hear. I think I thought of myself as being like quite a clever little kid who had a lot of comebacks in Spain. And because it was a kind of a tough neighborhood that I grew up in, we had a very, um, like our social culture was very, um, the hierarchies were very marked. And, you know, the only way that you could sort of assert yourself was through being cunning and clever. And then all of a sudden that was like, taken away from me and I had no way of expressing my um what I perceived to be my social dominance so I was really disappointed uh but yeah over time so pretty quickly over time I remember starting to understand you know a few words and then more words and so I have this weird memory of like the crystallization of what people are saying where I could pick up two or three words in a sentence, and then over time I could pick up most of the sentence. And then I think, from what I'm told, by the end of the first year, I was pretty much at grade level. Though there were other Spanish language speakers in the school, they were Mexican or Mexican-American, not Spanish. But I remember thinking how different not only the Spanish itself was, but also just our, our culture and our experiences and our background and our outlook. So I did speak some Spanish at school with Spanish speakers. There were no Spanish-speaking students in her class, and Kat really wanted to be able to communicate in English. So I would get home from school and watch TV and use that. I don't know if it was conscious or not, but I definitely remember like practicing, like talking back at my TV and trying to say whatever was being said and using that to to sort of learn in a safe environment where I wasn't testing like slang words out on kids because that felt very high risk. Like trying out a phrase that I'd never said before out loud in public uh, felt like it was a very risky thing to do. Do you remember having any experience where you tried to say something and people actually laughed at you? Or do you, was it like more of a fear in your head? No, it definitely happened all the time. And I don't, I can only remember one experience and I don't know exactly when it was, but it must've been pretty early on. I, was, I remember being really proud of myself because I raised my hand and I knew what I was going to say before I said it. But then I asked her for the worksheet instead of worksheet and I remember the entire class laughing. And I, I didn't initially, it took me a while to figure out that I had said the word wrong. Um, but I was just, I just felt like I, I couldn't, I like, all the wind was knocked out of me and I didn't ever want to say anything out loud in front of my classmates again because they just all thought it was so hilarious. And I think she was wondering if I did it like on purpose almost. And I could kind of see that in her face. And I was so devastated because I really wanted to please her. (laughs) For this part of the story, it helps to know that to an American eye, Kat is pretty unambiguously white. There is one thing that I recall that uh, I often wonder about now, which is that for, for a reason that's not known to me, that first year that I was in Plano at this elementary school, I was assigned a speech therapist to work with me. In my memory, it's something like an hour a day that she would take me out of the classroom. The rest of the time I was I was just in a in the regular sort of embedded in a classroom. There wasn't a an ESL program. But I would sit with this person and uh, as I recall, we would basically practice pronunciation. And I now as a teacher and as someone who's interested in public education, 
I marvel at that. And I wonder how that happened in a public school that I was given that much time and attention. And I, I have to, I feel like I have to credit that with how quickly I was able to learn the language. My mom has a very strong accent when she speaks English. And some of my friends who I met in Texas that were around my age have an accent when they speak English. And I can't help but wonder if her work with me on, like it was very detailed, like vowel pronunciation work, if it was part of the reason why I was able to assimilate, you know, learn the language quickly and also not have an accent. The non-Spanish speaking kids didn't see me as any different than the Mexican immigrants. And yet I wonder if the staff did. That haunts me a little bit. Like I do wonder if it was a white skin privilege thing. And, uh, or I don't know, or if it was the third grade teacher happened to, you know, I was the only English learner in her class. So maybe it had more to do with her and some strings that she pulled or some requests that she made that other teachers didn't make, but there it was. In this episode, you heard stories about how it feels to attend a school where you can't speak the language, about the strategies kids use to learn to communicate in a new language, and the complicated ways that language relates to people's larger sense of identity. Episode 8 of Points in Between will explore stories about learning a new culture and how it feels to miss home, even when home wasn't perfect. Points in Between is a production of the California Global Education Project. I'm Shane Carter. See the Points in Between webpage for additional information about each episode. You can find it at cispisglobal.org. Look under the Resources tab.